You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So the reading this afternoon is John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And it's right behind my head. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Uh, great. Uh, if you find it useful to follow along with a sermon outline, you can find one on the online welcome card. That's via the Sundays tab on our church website, darabinpc.com.au. There's also a copy of the, the passage that Tracy just read out on that page. Uh, even better, if you've got a Bible... Uh, You can open it up to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, please come and speak to us. We'd love to give you a Bible. Anyway, let's pray uh, before we look at this passage. Uh, Our gracious Father, we we do ask that you would watch over us now as we look at your word. Please speak to us. Uh, Please take me up and use me in my weakness. Help me to speak faithfully and clearly uh, and to point people towards our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I I wonder if you've ever found yourself thinking, how can I become a new me? 
don't know if you've ever thought that, whether you've had a, a deep sense that you, you long to be changed, to be transformed, to, to be, uh, experience some sort of inward renewal. You, you want to become a new you in some way, maybe even in some comprehensive way. How can that happen? How can you become a new you? And now maybe you've never thought about that question exactly. Perhaps you're quite content in who you are. Uh, but I, I reckon the marketers of our world understand that this is a question that we're always thinking about. Uh, think about, for example, uh, try this new diet and your life will be com- completely transformed. You'll look incredible. You'll be a new you. Or try this new shampoo and, and you, just, you just won't know what's hit you. You'll look amazing. Oh, when I was a kid, it was the Pantene Pro-V ad. I don't know if you remember that ad, you know. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. You'll look amazing if you try this new shampoo. Or then there's those Old Spice ads. You know, try this new deodorant and you'll go from a completely undesirable, sweaty slob of a man uh, to a very desirable, great-smelling stud of a man. And it's all just about the deodorant change. But enrol in this new mindfulness or meditation or hypnotherapy course and your life will be radically changed. You'll become a new you. And don't get me wrong, right? there's absolutely nothing wrong with washing your hair or smelling good or looking after your emotional health. There's nothing wrong with trying a new diet. Uh, But notice that the underlying assumption of all those marketing messages uh, is that you can make yourself into a new you. All you've got to do is tweak the right things in your life, make the right changes in your life, and you can completely transform yourself. let, Let me be very clear, that is not Christianity at all. But Christianity affirms our deep desire to be changed, to be transformed, to be renewed, but it says you cannot ever do that yourself. But if you want the change in your life to be anything more than superficial, if you want deep and lasting change, then the change in your life has to be much more comprehensive, much more radical. It has to be much deeper. And to use the language of this passage from John chapter 3, you have to be born again. You must be born again. Right? Spiritually speaking, you don't just need a little tweak, you need a completely fresh start. You need a new life, a new birth. You've got to become a new you. Right? That's my big idea for today's passage. If you want to become a new you, you must be born again. If you want to become a new you, you must be born again. And for that to happen, you've first got to recognise your need to be born again. This is verses 1 to 6 in the passage. Now take a look at verse 1. That's the first sentence there with a little number 1. Right here, if you're not familiar with reading the Bible. Verse 1, John says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So the fact that this man, Nicodemus, is a Pharisee tells us that he's a very conservative and moral and religious man. Whether the Pharisees were experts in the Jewish law, uh, they even had a role in teaching the law to God's people. He was very conservative, Nicodemus, very moral, very religious. And he was a member, we're told, of the Jewish ruling council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. This is the 70 leaders or elders of Israel who were based in the temple. 
Uh, if you were here last week, you, you might remember that a particular group of Jewish leaders uh, were responsible for questioning Jesus' authority for clearing out the temple. But Nicodemus would have been among those people. So maybe it's a bit strange that right after that, Nicodemus actually approaches Jesus to have this conversation with him. Although John does tell us, if you take a look at verse 2, he does it at night. Which on one level is very practical, isn't it? It protects Nicodemus' reputation. Maybe he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus just yet. He doesn't want his colleagues in the temple to know that he's talking to Jesus. Uh, But maybe it also tells us something about the spiritual condition of Nicodemus' heart. Maybe you remember in John's Gospel so far, the the darkness, the night, it's not just saying something physical, it's actually symbolising something spiritual. The spiritual condition of people, their eyes are still blind, their ears are still deaf, their hearts are still hard to the light that is found in Jesus. And that's what we see in Nicodemus. Even though he's a very religious man, very conservative, very traditional, knew the Bible, said lots of prayers, spent all sorts of time in the temple, despite all of that, he's still walking in darkness. He still needs to be born again. And yet Nicodemus is very curious about Jesus. Indeed, he has great respect for Jesus. I take a look there in verse 2. He refers to Jesus as rabbi. Even though Nicodemus himself is among Israel's teachers, we see that down in verse 10. Uh, He respectfully refers to Jesus as teacher. In fact, take a look there. On behalf of the Jewish ruling council, he says, we know uh, that you, Jesus, are a teacher who comes from God. Right? They know that Jesus isn't just any teacher. Right? There's something special about Jesus, something heavenly about Jesus. And notice their explanation, for they say, no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Right? The Jewish leaders recognise that the miraculous signs that Jesus are performing are like a divine endorsement on his teaching. It's God saying, this guy comes from me. Listen to his words. He is a teacher sent by me. So it seems pretty likely that Nicodemus is among those people who at the end of John chapter 2, I remember last week where we were told that many people saw Jesus perform miracles, they believed in his name, and yet Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. That seems to be Nicodemus. In some sense, he believes in Jesus. But he hasn't believed in the true Jesus. He's impressed by Jesus. He's attracted to Jesus' power and authority. But he doesn't understand that Jesus ultimately is going to show his power and authority by dying and rising again. That's what we saw last week. He's still walking in darkness. He needs to be born again. He needs new life in his heart. So that's what Jesus zooms in on in verse 3. Take a look in verse 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Very truly I tell you, that's Jesus' way of saying, Pay attention, Nicodemus, you've got to get this. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
The kingdom of God here isn't so much a kind of physical or geographical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It refers to the reign of God in the hearts and minds of people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, God's king, who John calls throughout his gospel the Messiah, God's chosen and promised king. And those who become a part of God's kingdom know all the blessings of God's kingdom. They see God's kingdom. In their own lives, they experience freedom and forgiveness and joy and hope and peace in this life and then in eternity. They enter into the new heavens and new earth, a place that's free of all sickness and suffering and sin. A wonderful thing to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, as one of the leaders of Israel, would have thought that when God's kingdom breaks into the world, he would have the inside track into God's kingdom. But he'd be at the front of the queue. He would be an insider, not an outsider. Why? Well, because he's so conservative and religious and traditional and spends his life in the temple and knows the Bible and says his prayers. Surely he's in. Jesus says no. Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you want to see God's kingdom, you've got to be made completely new. You must be born again. You might see a footnote there, born from above. What's Jesus saying? He's saying if you want to be a part of the kingdom of the God who is above, then the God who is above must do something in your heart. He must enlighten your dark heart. He must soften your hard heart. He must give you a new heart. And that hasn't happened for Nicodemus yet. That's why he doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. Look in verse 4. How can this be? How can someone be born, Nicodemus says, when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Oh, you remember this sort of confusion last week, right? The Jewish people in the temple thought Jesus was talking about a literal physical temple in Jerusalem uh, when he was actually speaking more metaphorically about his body as the temple. Likewise here, Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's thinking about a literal physical birth when Jesus is talking about a new spiritual birth, new life in someone's heart. So Jesus reiterates in verses 5 and 6. You see it there. Very truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can enter, kind of synonym for see, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You must be born again, Jesus says, and he clarifies what that is by saying it's about being born of water and of spirit. What is it? it makes it sound like Jesus is talking about, oh, you've got your physical birth, then you've got your water birth, then you've got your spirit birth. Or like, How many births are there here? I think he's just using water and spirit to describe the same new birth. What does it mean to be born again, to be born from above? Remember, Nicodemus is an expert in the Old Testament, the Jewish law. Uh, So I think Jesus is actually uh, kind of trying to allude to a promise that God made in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, verses 25 to 27. Uh, If you're a quick Bible flicker, you can flick back to the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. This is God's promise 
through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Ding, ding, ding. It's about water. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, God promises. I will put a new spirit in you. Remember, water and spirit, Jesus says. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. But this is what it means to be born again, to be born from above. It's to have the power of God's spirit cleanse your heart like water rushing through your heart, washing you clean of all your spiritual impurities. That's how it's described here. It's to have the power of God's spirit fill your heart. What does God want for his people? He wants them to love what he loves. He wants them to to want to live in a way that pleases him. And so he fills their heart with his spirit. And it's very clear in Ezekiel 36, isn't it, uh, that this new birth is something that only God can do. It's a wonderful gift of his grace. That's why he keeps saying, I will, I will, I will. It's God who will do all of this. I will sprinkle you with water, God says. I will cleanse you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. I will move you to keep my decrees. I will move you to keep my laws. This new birth by water and spirit is 100% God's work. It's all of his grace. This is not something that you can generate in your own life uh, by changing your diet or your deodorant. Or or even by doing seemingly more spiritual things like Nicodemus. I started going to church. I started reading the Bible. I started saying prayers. I started singing worship songs. Uh, Maybe I'm kind of generating this new birth in my life. No. This new birth of God's spirit is his work. 100%. We cannot generate it ourselves. It's an amazing gift of his grace. And what's clear from these verses is that it's a gift that all of us need. It doesn't matter who you are. If you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you must be born again. It doesn't matter if you're a very religious person like Nicodemus or if you consider yourself to be a very irreligious person. Maybe you're at church for the first time ever today or the first time in a long time. It doesn't matter who you are, you must be born again, Jesus says. It doesn't matter if you're a very socially and politically conservative person or a socially and politically progressive person. All of us equally need to be born again. None of us, spiritually speaking, are more enlightened than the others. We all need the new birth. It doesn't matter whether you're born in a Christian family and you're always taught about Jesus or whether you're born in a non-Christian family. It doesn't matter whether you're born in Australia or born overseas or if English is your first language or English is your second language. It doesn't matter whether you live north of Bell Street or south of Bell Street. Thanks, Adam. Uh, It doesn't matter. Uh, It doesn't matter if you've got lots of money or if you're always struggling for money. It doesn't matter if you're a great lover of coffee or if you can't stand coffee. It doesn't matter who you are. If you want to be, uh, enjoy all the blessings of being a part of God's kingdom, you must be born again. 
You've got to recognise your need to be born again. I wonder if you recognise that. Do you recognise that the problems in your life are the problems in our world are much, much deeper than making a few superficial changes to your life? They're not even about making wide-sweeping structural changes, like changing a government or an economic system or a whole education system. Of course we should work hard to get better government and better education and better this and better health services, all that. But the problems in our world aren't out there with other people or out there in the environment of our life. They're in here, in our hearts. If we want to experience deep and lasting change, we must be born again. I need a new heart. You need a new heart. We need new hearts. Do you recognise your need to be born again? And then in verses 7 to 12, we've got to understand where the power to be born again comes from. Look at verse 7. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again. You shouldn't be surprised, but because of passages like Ezekiel 36. You're supposed to be an expert in the Lord, Jesus is saying. How can you not know this? It's right there. Oh, we've already seen that Jesus compares the, the work of the Spirit to water in verses 8 and 9. He says it's also a bit like wind. Look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot hear where it comes from or, or, or tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Oh, yeah, well, we can't control God's Spirit any more than we can control the wind. The wind blows wherever it pleases. Likewise, God's spirit gives this new birth to absolutely whoever he pleases. I've got to remember that God's spirit is not some impersonal force that we can tap into to change our lives. God's spirit is the third person of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. God's spirit is free and powerful and sovereign. He's able to give this new birth to absolutely whoever he wants, whenever he wants. It's a gift that he gives to people. We can't generate it in our lives. In verse 9, where we see that Nicodemus still doesn't get it. How can this be? He says. In verse 10, Jesus says... You're supposed to be one of Israel's teachers. Don't you get this? And then in verse 11, I think what Jesus is doing there is taking Nicodemus off a bit. You know, right at the start of the conversation, Nicodemus came to Jesus as if he was in the know. We know this about you, Jesus. You're You're a teacher that's come from God. Let me tell you what we know, Nicodemus says to Jesus. Uh, Here in verse 11, Jesus says, it doesn't seem like you know that much at all, Nicodemus. Not in comparison to me and my people. What what we know, we we really know stuff. We've really got some insight, Jesus is saying. In fact, in verse 12, Jesus says, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then uh, will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? 
Uh, Well, what are these earthly and heavenly things? I think the context of who can enter God's kingdom is helpful. The earthly things uh, refer to what Jesus has been speaking about. The basic entry requirements of God's kingdom are that you must be born again while you're on earth. In that sense, it's an earthly thing. Uh, The heavenly things are like the fullness of God's kingdom. The wonderful blessings that the people who are a part of God's kingdom will enjoy in eternity. So what's Jesus saying to Nicodemus? He's saying, if you can't even get your head around kingdom of God 101, you know, the basic entry requirements of God's kingdom, then what's the point in me going into more detail about heavenly stuff? You've got to get the basics first, Nicodemus. These verses are really clear that the power to to, to be born again and become a part of God's kingdom uh, does not come from inside us. It doesn't come from our works. It comes from outside us. It comes from the work of God's spirit. Uh, That's quite hard for us to understand, isn't it? the, the, The kind of prevailing message of our culture is, yes, Not everything is right in your life, but yes, if you look deep enough inside yourself, you'll find the power to change your life. That's not Christianity. Christianity says that the problem's so deep, you can't work yourself out of it in any real and meaningful way. You've got to humbly surrender to God and admit that you can't sort out your own life. It's just too messy. The power to change your life comes from outside yourself, from the work of God's spirit. You must be born again. In that sense, our, as kind of this born again, this spiritual birth, uh, is a lot like our physical births. I know, I've not been through this. Many of you here are mums. But, but the reality is that none of us contributed anything to our physical births. Our mums did all the work. In the same way, none of us contribute anything to our spiritual births. God does all the work. That's where the power to be born again comes from. But what does it actually look like to be born again? I don't know if you hear the the label born again Christian used in in media uh, these days, but uh, it's typically used to describe a, a particular subset of Christians, isn't it? Not all Christians. This person didn't just become a Christian. They became a born-again Christian. What's being said there? It's often a typical of a very radical transformation. Someone's gone from a life of sex and drugs and crime to a life of thumping Bibles and preaching on street corners and campaigning for very, very conservative, far-right political positions, probably. That's a born-again Christian. So when I say you must be born again, you're probably thinking, I'm not sure I want that. (laughs) What does a born-again Christian look like? Well, first of all, born-again Christian is not describing a particular subset of Christians. It's describing every true Christian. Notice what Jesus says here. This is not special directions for Nicodemus. Everyone who wants to be a part of God's kingdom must be born again. And sure, that might be that radical transformation might be some people's story, but in the rest of the passage, John gives us two characteristics of what a born-again Christian looks like. The first in verses 13 to 18 is that a born-again Christian 
is someone who looks to Jesus, God's son, in faith. That's what a born-again Christian looks like, someone who looks to Jesus, God's son, in faith. Look in verse 13. And no one has ever gone into heaven, Jesus says, uh, except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This is Jesus' way of speaking about himself, the the Son of Man. He did it at the end of John chapter 1, and he's going to do it again in a couple of verses' time. Jesus is saying, unlike you, Nicodemus, I've got some insight into speaking about heavenly things. Why? Well, because I came from heaven. I'm God the Son, sent from heaven to earth by my Father. Why was he sent? Well, look in verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man, notice that again, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. It's maybe a little bit cryptic, right? but Jesus, in speaking about the lifting up of the Son of Man, he's speaking about his death on the cross. That the one day he's going to be lifted up on the cross. That the one who was sent from heaven to earth must be lifted up from the earth towards the heavens, that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. But put yourself in Nicodemus's shoes. Right? I think he probably is among those people who at the end of John chapter 2 would have said, yeah, box ticked. I believe in Jesus. So what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? Well, I think this allusion to the Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness helps a bit with what does it look like to believe in Jesus? This takes it back to a story about God's people Israel. You can read it later on in Numbers chapter 21. Uh, The Israelites had repeatedly been rebelling against God. Uh, When God had had enough, he sent a plague of uh, of uh, of venomous snakes amongst them. Pretty intense. People were being bitten and poisoned and even dying. Uh, But in the midst of that, God provided a way for them to be saved. He said to Moses, make a bronze snake, put it on a pole and lift it up amongst my people. Anyone who wants to live must look to that snake, lift it up. Now, two things here. You see what Jesus is saying? First, he's saying the problem of our sin is much deeper than we realise. It's, it's not that we're basically good and we do a few wrong things every now and then. The problem in our hearts, it's like our hearts have been poisoned by sin. Like every part of our being is infected by self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness. How do we deal with that? Well, God has provided a way for us to live. He sent his son to be lifted up among us and to die in our place for our sins and that whoever would look to him would have eternal life. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not just a matter of ticking a few intellectual boxes about Jesus. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. No, no. Believing in Jesus is understanding that he is your only hope in the face of certain death. If someone said, the only way that you can escape the poison of sin wreaking havoc in your life is looking to Jesus, 
You would look to Jesus desperately, wouldn't you? That's what it means to believe in Jesus, to trust him, to depend on him, to lean on him alone, to look to him as your only hope of life in the face of certain death. And Jesus says here, if you look to him, lift it up on the cross for your sins, and then you'll have eternal life. How is it that Jesus can give us eternal life? Well, we'll look in verse 16. John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I remember in John's Gospel, the world is rebellious and broken and really messed up people like us. So what's John saying? He's saying God the Father loved people like us. Not just really kind of people on the outside who look really clean and slick and pure and holy. No, no, no. He loved messed up people. People with darkness and ugly bits and shameful bits in their life. God the Father loved the world. And he loved the world not by sending us a sentimental greeting card, but by the greatest act of sacrifice possible, he gave his best. He gave his one and only son to be lifted up on the cross in our place, dying for our sins, and that whoever believes in him might have eternal life, and that whoever recognises that he and whoever looks to him as their only hope of life in the face of death, that person will not perish but have eternal life. And maybe, maybe you're someone who has a real uh, acute sense of justice. Like, well, if I'm, if I'm such a rebellious sinner, then surely God should condemn my sin. I don't want to get off scot-free. Bring it on. I want to say God has condemned your sin. Well, that's verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son. Some people think that God the Father sent his Son into the world to kind of give us a swift kick up the backside, to straighten us up morally, to teach us a new religion, a new system of morality. No, no, no. God, God the Father sent his Son into the world to save the world, to rescue us. And he rescued us by bearing the, the condemnation of death that we deserve on the cross. Right, for, for rejecting God, the, the source of all life. So what does that mean? That means, that John says, if you believe in Jesus... Your sin, your past, present and future sin has already been condemned in Jesus' death on the cross. You will never stand condemned before God. Remember Paul in Romans 1 verse 8, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin has already been condemned. And yet there's a warning here. If you don't believe in Jesus, your sin does still rest upon your own head. And one day you will stand before God and you'll have to give an account for your life. You must believe in Jesus. You must look to Jesus. 
And this is what a born-again Christian looks like. Someone who looks to Jesus, God's son, in faith. Someone who clings to Jesus, who understands that the mess in their life, the, their heart and life that's poisoned by self-centeredness and recognises that the death of Jesus on the cross is their only hope of life. I wonder if you've believed in Jesus. I wonder if you've looked to Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him lifted up on the cross for your sins, dying the death that you deserve to die? A born-again Christian is someone who looks to Jesus, God's son, in faith. Second, a born-again Christian is someone who puts on display a heart that is both bold and humble. This is verses 19 to 21. Look in verse 19, this is the verdict, John says, light has come into the world. This is referring to Jesus' birth. Right? In John chapter 1, John said, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Right? With Jesus' birth, capital L, light, came into the world. What a wonderful thing. John says, not so much. Look there, but people loved darkness instead of light. Notice again, the problem is is with what we love. It's in our hearts. We need new hearts. We love darkness instead of light. Why? Well, first, because our deeds are evil. But if we were all clean and pure, uh, then we'd have absolutely no problem coming into the light because it would just show how good we are. But most of us are terrified of the light of Jesus shining on the dark recesses of our hearts. And revealing that those ugly bits, those dirty bits, those shameful bits. And so in verse 20, John said, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I can honestly say that as someone who, by God's grace, not because of anything in me, but by God's grace, I've experienced what it is to be born again, I cling to Jesus each day. I look to him as my only hope of life. I can honestly say that I don't experience this fear of coming into Jesus' light. That's not because I'm better than anyone else who's here or anyone else, period. It's just because I've experienced what it is to come into Jesus' light and to have him expose my darkness and then to hear him say, don't fear Because I died on the cross for your darkness in your place, and I'm not going to condemn you for it. That's what it means to be a born-again Christian. It's to know that you are deeply sinful. So sinful that Jesus had to die for you on the cross. His death is the only way of life. And you're deeply loved. Because Jesus died for your sin and was condemned for your sin instead of you dying and you being condemned for your sin. What does that produce in the life of a person who's born again? It produces boldness and humility. That's what verse 21 is about. But whoever lives by the truth, that's whoever has come into the light, who's born again, who looks to Jesus, God's son, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. That's boldness, isn't it? Confidence, security, coming into the light where without any fear or guilt or shame. 
But that boldness never turns. In the life of a truly born-again Christian who's being made new by God, it should never turn into pride or arrogance or a kind of judgmental spirit that looks down its nose at someone else. It should never turn into that because, look, they come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God or literally done in God or through God. This is what a born-again Christian looks like, someone who knows that they are deeply loved because Jesus, God's son, was condemned in their place on the cross. He was willing to go to that length. For them. And yet, someone who knows that they're deeply sinful. And so, they, as they come into Jesus' light, they know that if there's anything good or pure or honourable in their life, it's been completely God's work, not their own. The born again Christian is someone who comes into the light of Jesus with great boldness and confidence and assurance, and yet also great humility. How can you become a new you? It's not just a matter of making a few superficial tweaks to your life. The problem's too deep. If you want to become a new you, you must be born again. You must look to Jesus, God's Son. He is your only hope. Let's pray and we'll sing. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, great passage that uh, touches on this deep desire that all of we have, all of us have, to be made new, to be transformed. And we pray that this day you would be at work, at work in our midst by the power of your Spirit, bringing this new life, this new birth, in people's hearts and minds. And we pray that the people might look to Jesus, your Son, lifted up on the cross for their sins for the very first time, uh, even in this moment. And we pray for those of us who have experienced this, uh, this wonderful uh, work of your grace in the past. Uh, We pray that you would move us to keep looking to Jesus, your son, and to keep coming into your light with boldness and humility. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.